Yes, welcome to week three of this sermon series on the book of Jonah. Great to have you who are joining us online, you who are listening by podcast, certainly you who are here with us in the room. Uh, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you know how chapter one, uh, Jonah is a pretty poor excuse for what a prophet should be, uh, what a believer in God should be, and yet God's mercy, as Pastor Amy talked about last week in Jonah chapter two, God's mercy pursues Jonah down to the deepest depths of life. And today we're going to see how God gives Jonah a do-over in Jonah chapter 3. As we've done each week in the series, our opportunity is going to be to marvel, not at Jonah, but to marvel at God. And so I invite you to have your Bibles open to Jonah chapter 3. Your Bible's open or on, I guess, depending on whether they're digital or, or paper. And, and uh, we'll read Jonah, the whole chapter of chapter 3. So hear the word of the Lord. Then... The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. May God bless the reading of his word. The first time my wife and I went to New York City, we were in graduate school, late 20s, I think, uh, when was how old we were, and I was not at all prepared for the scale of the architecture. You see, I had been living in Waco, Texas, where I went to college, and the Waco that I remember had one skyscraper, it's called the Alico Building. It was a whopping 22 floors high. And here we are in Manhattan, and each of the twin towers that had existed at that time were 110 floors apiece. Literally five <laughs> Alico Buildings. And uh, the reason that that memory sticks out is because something my wife was saying uh, constantly to me as we walked the bustling cities of Manhattan. As I stared up at the building, she kept saying, close your mouth, close your mouth, because I was going like this. <laughs> um, for this veritable country bumpkin, I mean, the Big, app, the Big Apple was this constant exercise in jaw-dropping, uh, if you will. That, that was me, uh, basically. Now, I bring this up for a reason. I think the, the chapter three of Jonah presents us with a series 
of jaw-dropping experiences at God's mercy and God's power. And so as we walk through this, it sounds weird to say, but I hope your jaw drops uh, in a sense. Uh, I hope you are overwhelmed once again with the grace of God. I hope you are motivated once again to worship this gracious God and to follow this gracious God. And so as we walk through this passage, I want us to talk about God's jaw-dropping ways. I I would go so far as to say one of the characteristics of spiritually mature people is that they're fascinated with grace, They're constantly searching for grace like bird watchers. They're looking for signs of God's grace. And they never get bored with the grace of God because God's grace is not boring. God's grace is astonishing. And and, and while I didn't do this literally as I studied chapter 3, I think in my heart, my jaw kept dropping. I I, I think of it spiritually, what what it's like uh, when you physically visit Niagara Falls for the first time, or so I'm told, Yellowstone, or, or the Grand Canyon, your jaw drops at the creative, gracious power of God. God has a way of doing things, as we'll see in this passage. They don't make sense on paper, at least not how we would put pen to paper. And yet it, it surprises us, and it motivates us. And so I want us to look at three surprising moves that God makes in this passage. And the first one is this, God makes repeated deposits in what you might term bad investments. God makes repeated deposits in bad investments. Now what do I mean by that? Well, illustration, if if your brother-in-law asked you to invest in his can't miss business opportunity that he created, and you did, and then you lost all your money, Maybe, maybe you would eventually forgive your brother-in-law. Maybe you would even get to the point where you would speak to him at Christmas or even play dominoes with him at Christmas. But I can tell you one thing you would never do again. You would never turn around and put any of your hard-earned cash into his harebrained schemes. That's not being mean. That's just being smart, right? How's the old saying go, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I've got to be wise, I've got to be prudent, I've got to be smart. So with that in mind, look how shocking the opening of chapter 3 is. Which says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. If those two verses sound familiar, it's because they are. (laughs) It's almost exactly the way the book of Jonah started. Chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, told him to go to Nineveh, told him to preach against it because of its wickedness. God invested in Jonah, this calling. God invested in Jonah, his word. God's word is like a currency for us. God gave Jonah his trust. And what did Jonah do with that investment? He squandered it. He didn't just ignore the word of God, he defied the word of God. He did the opposite of what God told him to do. Fool God once, shame on you. Fool God twice. God, God wouldn't give you a second chance, would he? Maybe, maybe some of you believe that God would never take a second chance on you. You had your chance and you blew it. And now, as far as you're concerned, you are permanently on God's sideline. But somehow, 
Somehow God operates differently. Somehow God thinks that Jonah's humbling experiences near the bottom of the sea might actually make him a more effective witness. Maybe a preacher with seaweed still wrapped around his head might get people's attention. A preacher with a story, right? A preacher with a testimony of God's rescue. You may not believe Jonah's worthy of a second chance. I may not believe Jonah's worthy of a second chance. Jonah himself may not believe he's worthy of a second chance. But apparently, God does. There's an author named Michael Lewis. Maybe you've heard of him. He's written best-selling books like Moneyball and The Big Short. And he wrote a, a personal little book in 2008, shared something of his story. And the book is called Coach. Uh, He talks in the book about the summer of his freshman year in high school. He said he was 14, but physically he looked more like he was 12. Uh, He was uh, a player on a a high school summer league baseball team. It was the bottom of the ninth, and on the mound was their team's best pitcher. He was their best pitcher. Uh, They were up by one run, but he had allowed a runner on a first and a runner on third. Michael's coach was a man named Fitz, and Coach Fitz walks to the mound. He takes the ball out of the hands of their best pitcher, and then shockingly, he looks at Michael and waves for Michael to come in and take his place. He said the other team in in their dugout just started erupting in laughter and joy. But Michael said that Coach Fitz looked at him, and his attitude communicated that there was no one he'd rather have on the mound at this moment than Michael. Fitz looked at Michael and he says, you see that runner over there on third base? First thing I want you to do is I want you to pick him up, pick him off. He's taking. And then he said, after you pick off that guy, I want you to strike out this uh, guy at home plate and, and, and let's go home. And uh, shockingly, Michael did both of those things <laughs> and won the game. Now, maybe you think that's just one half inning in a relatively meaningless summer league baseball game. But since Michael wrote a whole book about it, a whole book about his coach, I think there's a lot more going on. In fact, Michael writes that 30 years later, he can still recall the sensation it created in him. When Fitz handed him the ball, he said, he didn't just hand me the ball, he handed me his confidence. Michael said he didn't have words for it now, but now, then, but now he realizes what was happening in his brain and what was happening is this. He, he said, I realize I'm about to show the world and myself what I can do. He said up to that time in his life, everybody, including himself, thought the only thing Michael was good for was C minuses in school and picking fights with teachers and ripping hood ornaments off cars at two in the morning and basically living a life of low achievement. But he said when Coach Fitz called him into the game, suddenly this fantastically persuasive man was insisting, however improbably, that I might be some other kind of person, a hero. Friends, isn't it fascinating how at the beginning of chapter three, God Almighty walks out to the mound and puts the ball in Jonah's hands. I mean, you can only imagine how the devil and his demons were laughing in their dugout. 
But sometimes God sees things in us that we don't even see in ourselves. Certainly no one else sees in us, but God sees it, and it's enough. It's enough to make your jaw drop in astonishment. But that's not all. I had kind of a second jaw-dropping experience. You try to say that. Jaw-dropping experience as I read chapter 3, and that is that God makes real impact through substandard effort. Now, I struggle to write that because that looks, that looks really strange to see as a point in a sermon, doesn't it? God makes real impact through substandard effort. I don't want to be misunderstood, so let me, let me clarify first. Uh, it is certainly not a good thing that Jonah gave substandard effort. It's not a good thing that Jonah let down the team. We don't celebrate failure. We don't celebrate half-heartedness We don't celebrate lukewarmness. Revelation talks about that. We don't celebrate spiritual mediocrity. God tells us that he wants us to love him with our whole hearts and our whole minds, right? Our our whole souls, all our strength. God loves passionate worshipers. God loves selfless servants. God loves hilarious givers. God loves the humble who are happily third in their relationships with others. But at the same time, Scripture also says, equally true, that God is God. God is not limited by our efforts. As the the old country preacher would say, God can hit a straight lick with a crooked stick. And God can do amazing things through us, even when our efforts and attitudes are not the best. And that's exactly what happens in the middle of chapter three. God sends Jonah out again. This time Jonah obeys, although as we'll learn next week, uh, his attitude uh, was not great. Uh, Grudging obedience, we'll talk about that in chapter four. He goes to this large city of Nineveh, kind of maps out how he plans to spend his little preaching tour, his three-day preaching tour. He's only on the first day of this three-day tour. And we read this happening in in verse 4. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city of Nineveh, proclaiming, we don't know if this is the whole sermon or just a summary of the sermon, but this is it, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's his sermon. Does that sound like a winning sermon to you? Jonah doesn't sound like he's been overwhelmed with the sweetness and love of God, does he? But it was honest, uh, and, and, and Nineveh was not a nice place. Nineveh was not a nice place. What we see happening in Nineveh, we see happening over and over again in Scripture, in history, and that is when people become untethered from God, uh, the whole thing starts going south, right? Morality declines, holiness is absent, speech, their speech dishonors God. They don't make and keep holy commitments to one another anymore. Their, their sexual behavior crosses over biblical boundaries. They resort to verbal and physical violence instead of love. Their pride continues to trip them up and make them fall. It's a, it's a, it's a stench, morally speaking. But God has demonstrated patience with Jonah, and now God is demonstrating patience with the Ninevites. And even though Jonah's not in a great mindset to preach, God works through Jonah's gritted teeth. God works through Jonah's reluctance. And I find that to be a great encouragement, friends. I absolutely love the fact that God's power can even overcome my poor attitude. I love that God's strength is more than adequate 
in the midst of my weakness. And I have to tell you, some of my most powerful experiences of serving have happened when God takes my substandard offering, my small, cold, dry biscuits and a couple sardines of effort, and he multiplies it. Martin Copenhaver is a pastor. Very early in his ministry, he faced an incredibly challenging situation. The son of one of his church members was one of 152 passengers on a plane that was hijacked and uh, diverted to Beirut. When Martin heard the news, he went, immediately went to the home of, of the parents of this young man. They watched the news together, terrified. They made phone calls. Then one of the hostages was, was killed uh, quite publicly, and the family watching the TV, they were just paralyzed with fear. And Martin said, young pastor, he said, he had no idea what to do. And he just sat in silence until finally the young man's mom turned to him and said, uh, Pastor Martin, this is when you offer a prayer. <laughs> he said he didn't know what to pray. He said he didn't want to pray. <laughs> but he said he was the pastor and pastors can't opt out of prayer. <laughs> and so he prayed. I read that story, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. It's taken on special meaning for me, but not just as a pastor. And so please don't discard it, ah, oh, that's a pastor story, I'm not a pastor. It really means a lot more to me as a Christian because I can't tell you the number of times that I haven't wanted to do something God wanted me to do. But grudgingly, the situation, the Holy Spirit says, Larry, this is the time for you to pray. This is the time for you to serve. This is the time for you to speak kindly to a person who's wounded you. This is the time for you to face your fear and do it anyway. This is the time for you to move out of your comfort zone. And church, I've lost, I've lost count of the number of times God has worked through my reluctant obedience. So many times what started out feeling half-hearted and reluctant turned into a theater for God to do something beautiful and powerful. So please, please listen to me right now because maybe right now, this week, God has been whispering to you, he said your name, and then he said, this is the time for you to do X. But Lord, I don't feel qualified. Lord, I don't know how. Lord, I don't want. This is the time. Right now, this is the time. It's God's power, not ours. It's God's power that makes our jaw drop and heart sore. And as we'll see, God took that pitiful eight-word sermon or sermon summary of Jonah's and did something extraordinary, which leads to the third jaw-dropping experience I have with chapter three, which is this. God makes revival break out among unlikely people. Jonah didn't think the Ninevites deserved revival, but who deserves revival? <laughs> I mean, aren't we all unlikely people, more or less, to one degree or another? Isn't it amazing 
when God revives any of us sinners? Now maybe you're, you know, you're wondering, what does that word revival mean? For some of us, revival was something a church scheduled for a weekend or a week or two weeks or beyond. Uh, I, I, revival in, in, its, in its deepest sense is something that God does. It's, it's a way that God breathes life into sick and dying souls. The psalmist would pray that God would send his presence in a new way, like, like God doing CPR, like God reviving someone who, who was a near victim of drowning. The psalmist would pray in Psalm 85, will you not revive us again? Will you not revive us? We're dying here. Will you not revive us that your people may rejoice in you? And throughout Scripture and throughout Christian history, there have been times when a collection of people, maybe a church, maybe a, a university, maybe a city, maybe a whole country, experienced God's reviving power in a dramatic way. Sometimes God would use a, a passage of scripture, or maybe he would speak through a sermon, or maybe he would speak through a testimony, or, or maybe he would speak through a prayer gathering, or maybe he would speak through a confession of sin. Confession is often a key part of revival. And suddenly, it's like the people are face-to-face -face with God. As one writer puts it, when revival happens, God's concerns are foremost in our minds and hearts. When revival happens, when we feel that gap between God's holiness and our unholiness, and yet we also feel that promise, and we cling humbly to the promise of God to breathe life into us. And that's what happens in Jonah chapter 3. Jonah shares this truth about God, or at least he shares part of the truth about God. He says that judgment is coming in 40 days. Now, there was, I think, another part to that sermon that he left off, which was unless, <laughs> unless you repent. Judgment is coming in 40 days. Sometimes in the Bible, the Bible just kind of latches onto numbers, right? Like, like, like the number three, Father, Son, and Spirit, faith, hope, and love, Peter, James, and John. Sometimes uh, it's the number seven, you know, six days shalt thou labor, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day. Seven is a holy number. Sometimes the number is 12, 12 uh, tribes of Israel, 12 apostles of Jesus. Sometimes, as in our passage, the number is 40. Eugene Peterson in his book, Under the Unpredictable Plant, deepened my understanding of the significance of 40 in the Bible. He says 40 whether it's 40 days, 40 years, 40 represents a season of testing the reality of one's life. The children of Israel wandered for 40 years, a time of testing their commitment to God. Many failed that test. Jesus was tested for 40 days in the wilderness. His allegiance to the kingdom of God, Jesus passed that test with flying colors. Peterson says that sometimes that number 40 hangs out there, and if we believe in the 40, it, it's not only about the 40th day or year, but it shapes all the days leading up to it. Almost like that 40th week is a due date. But every day between now and the due date is filled, filled with new meaning in anticipation of this birth of new life. Now, some people don't live with a 40. 
They don't live under the umbrella of God's holiness, God's justice and judgment as well as God's salvation. So many people don't live with the 40. They live each day like these days are just going to keep going on, 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 like, like there's not going to be a meeting our maker moment, right? But suddenly, suddenly Jonah is speaking about a 40. And, and, and it seems like the, the people of Nineveh heard that number not only as a scary prediction of doom, which of course it was, but also, as Peterson says, a proclamation of hope that there's another way of life that's possible than the way of life we're living right now. And that's when revival breaks out. Verse 5, what a startling turn of events. The Ninevites, the Ninevites of all people, believed God. How do we know? Well, look what they did. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When revival happens, something clicks in the hearts of the people. And one of the characteristics of revival is a time of spiritual sobriety. It's a time of mourning over sin. It's a time of humbling ourselves. It's a time of recognition that we can't do life on our own. It was a time of fasting, a time of self-denial. Even the animals were made to fast. It was a time of wearing simple garments, uh, that's what sackcloth is, a simple garment for a mourning or sinful people. This was not a time to impress one another right, with our fine clothes. And it happened with rich people and poor people. It happened with men and women. It happened with young and old. Get this, even the king of Nineveh did the most unking-like thing you can imagine. He took off his royal robes. He put on sackcloth. He hopped off the throne. He sat down in the dust, and he humbled himself. St. Clair Ferguson has said, in times of revival, God's word comes with unusual power. It's not because of the, the, the eloquence of the preacher. It's because God grease the skids, he said, for his word to come with unusual strength and power. He said, in times of revival, God's word overcomes seemingly unsurmountable barriers to his grace. There was a man who experienced that truth. His name was Reese Howell. Uh, he actually dedicated his life during a Welsh revival in 1904. He was a man of unusual prayer. There's a book written about him. The title is Intercessor. Uh, he was a missionary. After that, he and his wife moved to southern Africa. They used to meet uh, every Thursday night with an, another missionary couple. They'd read the Bible and pray for revival. And then one morning, October 1915, they're in worship, they're in church. There's a young African girl, her name is Kufase, and she had been fasting for three days. You wanna know why? It's because she sensed that she was not, her soul was not ready for the Lord's return. So she came to church, she was fasting, she was weeping, and Reese Howell said that within five uh, minutes, the whole congregation was crying out to God. He said it felt like thunder and lightning inside church. A revival broke out. It lasted for 15 months. Hundreds of people were converted to Jesus. And it all started so simply. When four Christians prayed, and when one girl began to be concerned about whether or not she was ready for day 40. 
Jonah chapter 3, the king says, who knows? We deserve God's wrath, but who knows? Maybe God will turn from fierce anger. Maybe God will meet us with compassion instead. And of course, that's exactly what happened in verse 10. When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did and how they turned from their evil ways, how they repented, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Hmm. Makes your jaw drop in wonder at God's grace. There's a good chance that Many of you have seen maybe a moment in a sci-fi movie or maybe on an episode of Star Trek when there's this alien enemy taking over and the enemy says something to the effect of silence, earthlings, resistance is futile. I think Jonah learned that when it comes to God, resistance is an exercise in futility. You can dedicate your whole self to resisting God or manipulating God, but it's never going to turn out the way you want it to. In the end, resistance is futile. But what the gospel tells us that the aliens don't is that while resistance is futile, revival is possible. Repentance is possible. New life is possible, not because of our righteousness, but because of God's mercy. And I just wonder, are there some ways God is moving you in that direction right now? Is there a second chance or a third chance or a fourth chance God is laying out there that you've refused? Is there a way that even a small obedience, even as Jesus says, a mustard seed of faith could be used by God to move a mountain? Is there a word God has placed on your minds? Maybe a prayer that God is bringing with unusual power. Friends, pay attention to that prompting. Adopt the attitude of the king of Nineveh and just say, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Maybe God is choosing this moment to do something powerful. Something jaw-dropping. Not because we deserve it but because God gives second chances, but because God works through reluctance even, through unpreparedness, through grudging obedience, because God can use a number like 40 or a verse or a sermon or a little girl's tears to cause his thunder and mercy to rain down. Makes your jaw drop when you think about it, doesn't it? Let's pray. Lord, we don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve grace. We don't deserve your continual investment in us, Lord. We don't deserve the power of your word. We don't deserve revival. And yet, Lord, we are amazed. We're amazed at grace. Lord, let us pay attention to grace. Cause our ears to listen. Jesus says for the one who has ears, let them hear. Lord, give us spiritual hearing to hear what it is you want to say to us in this moment and give us faith and courage to respond. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.